Hello, and welcome to episode 5 of season 2 of Bad Gays, a podcast about evil and complicated gay men in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer and researcher and member of the board of the Gay Museum in Berlin. And I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and author. Last week, we profiled Frederick the Great, a Prussian king with a very bad dad who instituted domestic reforms at home while conquering much of Europe in a series of pointless wars. Who are we talking about this week, Hugh? Today we're talking about um, Charles George Gordon, better known as Gordon of Khartoum. Charles George Gordon was born into a military family in Woolwich in London in 1833 to a long line of British army officers. He was to be the fifth generation of officers in his family and was raised from birth with that model as the only expectation for his life, as was the case with all his brothers. As his father, Henry William Gordon, was a major general in the British army, Gordon's childhood was itinerant. Was he the very modern of a that? He was the very model of a modern major general. I clearly didn't do my vocal warm-ups before today's show. Um, he was, so his childhood was pretty itinerant. He was raised on army bases in England, Ireland, Scotland, and in Greece. So he's a standard army brat, really. Before being educated at private school in Somerset, and then at the Royal Military Academy in Woolwich. It's a place that produces people with normal psychosexual profiles. Yeah. Well, we're going to find out. When he was 10, uh, his favourite sister, Emily, died, which proved to be a very traumatic experience for him, and he claimed that he was never the same again. He then transferred his attachment onto his older sister, Augusta, who was extremely pious, and this led him closer to her religion, and his complex relationship with Christianity and scripture would be a driving force in his life as he struggled to battle against his own tendencies. And I'm not talking here about any potential future homosexuality. Gordon also displayed from his very earliest days an incredibly independent and rebellious streak. He hated authority, which is a difficult personality trait for someone who was essentially raised in the twin institutions of the British Army and the Church of England. And as a result, he moved slowly through the education system, being held back for two years on account of his disobedient temperament. But his disobedience wasn't arbitrary. He had a tendency to make his own strategic and ethical decisions and disobey what he believed to be unjust orders. He showed particular skill in the academy in engineering and cartography, and so on graduation he won his commission and joined the Royal Engineers as a second lieutenant at the age of 19, a particularly risky unit who that often had to map enemy positions and destroy any obstacles prior to the main assault. He completed his training in Chatham, Kent, and was dispatched to the new town of Milford Haven to help build fortifications there, and South Wales was a site of religious dissidents, and there he became friends with a couple called Francis and Anne Drew, who were Protestant evangelicals, and he himself became a Protestant evangelical. His faith, great. Hmm. his faith deepened. Within the scriptures, he found in the letters from St. Paul to the Philippi Philippians what he felt was a chance at redemption through his death. In Philippians 1, he read, quote, According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, and that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And he actually underlined that line, uh, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain, hmm. in his Bible. And this became a thing that he kept coming back to. Anyway, as a result, throughout his life, Gordon would display a complete lack of consideration for his own personal safety, which was often verging on foolhardiness. Many would then go on to interpret this as a death wish that he held, as he kept pushing himself into increasingly dangerous and violent situations, usually unarmed. As he rose in prominence and fame, the Victorian public in England would tie together his imperial ambitions with his strong religious faith, which led to him being portrayed as the archetypal Christian soldier. Gordon would never actually belong to any particular flavour of Christianity. He never chose a specific church. He attended Baptist, Anglican, Presbyterian, and even Roman Catholic congregations at various points in his life. But he did read the Bible daily, and he would later develop his own idiosyncratic set of cosmological beliefs around Christ Christology? Christology. Christology. Yeah, the theory and nature of, Christ, of Christ's nature and his divinity. Okay. Anyway, more on that later. Back to his military career in which he'd make his name. Gordon was sent from Milford Haven in Wales to Corfu in Greece, which was actually where he spent part of his childhood. But ever hungry for military action, he repeatedly petitioned to be sent where the action was. 
and at that time Britain had been fighting the Russians in Crimea for two years. In 1855, Gordon finally joined them to see action. He wrote in a letter at a time that he was going, quote, to the Crimea, hoping without having a hand in it to be killed, end quote. Well, there you go. Sounds reasonable. Yeah. So the Crimean War was nominally about the defence of Christian groups in what was the Ottoman Empire at the time, as Tsar Nicholas I demanded that Orthodox Christians in the empire were put under his protection. But the Ottomans refused, and the Russian Empire then used that as a pretext for invasion and occupied most of what is now Romania. The Ottomans tried to repel the invasion and pretty much held the line, but the Ottoman Empire at the time was crumbling. Indeed, the purpose of the war for the Russians was to try and gain as much territory as possible from the empire's inevitable collapse. The French and the British were determined to prevent it, so they sent reinforcements, but they were strategically unable to act. And Karl Marx, in his role as a journalist, actually remarked at the time, quote, There they are, the French doing nothing, and the British helping them as fast as possible. End quote. <laughs> the Allies decided then to smash the huge Russian naval base at Sevastopol on the Black Sea. The Black Sea was strategically vital to Russia because it's its only southern access point to the Mediterranean, with all the sort of military and trade implications that that might imply. Um, the Russians repelled the attack in what became known as the Battle of Balaclava, but it became a very brutal war. The Crimean War was maybe the first modern war. Technology such as explosive naval shells, telegraphy, uh, and the railways made the slaughter absolutely horrific, and mainly from sickness and disease. So sort of a preview, maybe, of the horrors that were to come in World War One, where sort of old-style European gentleman's warfare is replaced by something more total. Yeah, and this... this um tension between the old way of doing things and the new technology becomes a repeated point throughout his life. Um, out of the 1.65 million men who fought in the Crimean War, 900,000 died. Um, Russia took 900,000 soldiers into battle. Half a million of them died almost, but only 70,000 from, were from enemy action. They lost almost 400,000 men to disease. Jesus. And somehow with his big death wish, Gordon managed to live through this. <clears throat> he survived, yeah. Um, the other technological innovation that changed the war was the invention of photography and telegraphy. In the year that Gordon arrived in Crimea in 1855, the British had laid an underwater cable to the peninsula, and so news reports could be sent back to London in a couple of hours, as opposed to, you know, 50 years earlier, it would take weeks for reports to get back. Um, and photographs of the battlefield also changed uh, public perceptions of the war. It was almost consumed as entertainment, although the British public did feel that the war was being mismanaged and the death toll was far too high. In 1855, anti-war protests broke out in a snowball riot in Trafalgar Square, and shortly after, the Pillai coalition government, led by Lord Aberdeen, collapsed, leading to Lord Palmerston becoming Prime Minister. He wanted to expand the war, but actually within a year, a peace treaty was signed. But part of the upshot of the war was a change in the relationship between the British people and the British army. Traditionally, that relationship had actually been quite antagonistic. The army had been used regularly to suppress political dissent at home and were seen as violent and hard-drinking and troublemakers, not somebody you want in your town. But in the devastation of the war in Crimea, combined with increasing nationalism and patriotism spurred on in Britain by its colonial conquests, that all changed. And this image of the brave Tommy meaning like a hard-working and honest soldier who's prepared to give his all for his country and his queen and to expand the empire, yet someone who's put unnecessarily in harm's way by foolish old commanders, that really gained ground in that conflict. And that's kind of the image of the British soldier today. This would later find expression in the slaughter of the Somme, in the expression uh, lions led by donkeys, which is how the British army was described. And it's a key part of... Um, a sort of liberal nationalistic myth in Britain today that works to disguise the actual violence that's perpetrated by by British soldiers in campaigns of colonial expansion. Anyway, in Crimea, the most famous example of that was the Charge of the Light Brigade, an infamous charge during the siege of Sevastopol where a light cavalry br brigade of 600 men, as a result of some confused orders, charged headlong into a Russian artillery battery. They suffered enormous losses, but the charge was the subject of a narrative poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson, who was the poet laureate, 
that emphasise this particular type of British stiff upper lip, stiff upper lip masculinity, a sort of fearlessness in the face of death, and that's still the British national myth of manhood, which is completely toxic. I can't think of anything, uh, any better description of uh, dominant British manhood than um, charging into uh, certain injury and possible death for literally no reason at all, but don't turn around yeah. for any reason, even if there's literally no reason why you're doing it. Yeah. doesn't remind me of anything going on at the moment. And I was taught about the Charge of the Light Brigade, both in my history class and in my English class. You know, you're really, it's really drummed into you at school. In fact, I thought I'd read the, the first part of it, as the em- emphasis on this dignified slaughter and obedience does become a vital part of Gordon's story. Uh, so yeah, here's the poem. The lot of the first three verses. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death rode the six hundred. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said. Into the valley of death rode the six hundred. Forward the light brigade, was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldier knew someone had blundered. Theirs not to make reply, theirs not to reason why, theirs but to do and die. Jesus mm. Christ! Into the valley of death rode the six hundred. Cannon to right of them, cannon to left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered. Stormed at with shot and shell, boldly they rode and well. Into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell, rode the six hundred. I assume that the poem does not end with the commander who screwed up and sent them into harm's way getting his comeuppance? No, I try. It was Lord Cardigan, I think. So there you go. Given the role. <laughs> So that's why we wear him as a sweater. Yeah, that's what it uh, means to be a man in Victorian Britain. Uh, Yay! So Gordon was Being at a man is great. <laughs> yeah, Gordon was at the siege of Sebastopol, and he made his reputation there, um, both for his assiduous efficiency in his work, but also for his bravery. He was said to have spent thirty-four consecutive days in the extremely dangerous frontline trenches right beneath the fortress, mapping its walls for the assault. The British headquarters were said to have remarked, quote, If you want to know what the Russians are up to, send for Charlie Gordon. End quote. He was awarded the Crimean War Medal in Britain and became a Chevalier of the Legion d'Honneur in France for his service. Following the war, he was sent to take part in the British pastime of drawing borders in other people's countries, oh, this yes. time delineating the border between the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire in modern-day Romania. Then he continued this task on the border of Russia and uh, Ottoman Armenia, and here he also took up photography, which he continued for his entire life, and he was actually uh, honoured as a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society for his photographs. However, his time in Anatolia was short-lived, and he returned to Chatham, uh, was promoted to captain in the winter of 1858. Uh, you won't be surprised to hear that Chatham didn't really do it for Gordon. There was a, a lack of opportunity to realise a death wish. Hmm. I'm happy to say that situation has changed. If you have a death wish, go to Chatham. <laughs> We're going to get angry letters from our Chatham fan. Um, I assume we have one. Yeah. But anyway, he was bored, so he continued to be petitioned to be sent back into action. And... Well, you probably would still be bored if you were in Chatham. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, in 1860, he finally managed to volunteer uh, to sail to China to fight in the Opium Wars. Um, oh, good. That's a good yeah. thing to volunteer to do. Well, yeah, I mentioned uh, that we were taught twice about the Charge of the Light Brigade at school, but I literally never heard the word opium was at school. It just wasn't mentioned. Gee, I wonder why. Yeah, Britain just does not teach its children about its colonialist and imperialist history. It leaves that to the cinema and to politicians who completely whitewash the past. A YouGov poll in 2014 found that 59% of British people thought that the empire was something to be proud of while 19% thought there was something to be ashamed of. It also found that 49% of Brits thought the countries that Britain colonised were, quote, better off as a result of colonisation. So whenever people express these frankly ludicrous and racist views about uh, about the empire, I always... Shades a- of Niall Ferguson. Yeah. I always ask them what they think the Opium Wars were about. Uh, I'll try and express it as quickly as possible here. But what were the Opium Wars about? Yeah, it's quite complicated. But <clears throat> the Opium Wars were two wars that were fought by the British with French support against the Chinese government from 1829 to 1860. China at the time 
at the start was the world's largest economy, and it had been for literally centuries. Britain had begun trading with China in the 1630s, and private companies such as the British East India Company were trying to gain a, a foothold in a lucrative import-export market with China, shipping tea, silk and porcelain back to England. The problem was twofold. China was a thriving economy that would only trade for silver. And secondly, the British didn't produce anything that the Chinese wanted. As a result, China's economy boomed, and there was a huge trade imbalance. The European powers, and especially the British, were simply pumping their precious China into their precious silver into the Chinese economy. Uh, the Chinese in exchange for China and tea. In exchange for China and tea, um, but there's a difference between those two mm-hmm. properties. The European powers. You can grow more tea every year. You can't grow more silver. Yes. The European powers, and especially the British, uh, yeah, were just pumping all this money into the Chinese economy, and the Chinese had a very regulated trade system, including um, a system of tributes, uh, a restriction of foreign trainers, uh, traders into China. They weren't allowed to learn Chinese, so they kept it as a monopoly of their own internal trading power. And also, all the trade had to go through um, a trade guild called the Kohong. Um, prior to this, the flow of opium into China had been very limited, because part of, partly because of a distance of the land routes, and therefore it had to be consumed as a dry powder that you'd add to tea that wasn't particularly um, effective. But it was, a, it was a minor issue, basically, in Chinese society. But it was banned in the 1640s as a sort of decadent habit. I love decadent habits. Yeah. However, the loss of the British colonies in the American War of Independence had had a catastrophic effect on Britain being able to access silver, which it was mining in America. And if you add to this the war with the Spanish that was interrupting silver flows from their colonies in South America, and then the Spanish losing those colonies in the uh, Spanish-American Wars of Independence, suddenly Europeans, and especially the British, needed something new to trade with China. Um, Guess where this is going? So as they colonize, no, good. yeah. So as they colonize the Indian subcontinent further, uh, especially Bengal, they took over the opium production of the declining Mughal Empire, and suddenly they had a crop which the Chinese didn't produce because the Chinese didn't want to produce huge amounts of opium for a domestic market. Um. So, yeah, like why would you possibly want to, yeah, produce this huge market for addictive, socially detrimental narcotics? to flood your own country, like, no point. But that was neither here nor there for the British, and the East India Company began smuggling huge amounts of opium into China in contravention of Chinese law. At first, the Chinese tolerated the smuggling because the uh, silver was getting back into European traders' pockets, allowing them then to buy more Chinese goods. But in 1821, the British then adopted the gold standard for their entire empire and therefore needed more quality silver for their currency that restricted supply and was sending a sil- uh, silver back to Europe. So the British began to then flood the Chinese market with as much opium as they could produce. And opium became a total curse for Chinese society. It had previously been the preserve of mainly rich layabouts, but it spread across the entire country, completely devastating its productive capacity and leading to huge social problems. By 1838, there were maybe 12 million opium addicts in China. Its economy had collapsed to half its previous GDP. And when the imperial commissioner in Canton, uh, called Lin Zexu, apologies for any mispronunciation there, um, when he ordered that the foreign traders uh, were quarantined to their quarters and their warehouses were raided in 1838, he confiscated over a thousand tons of opium. That's one million kilograms of opium in their warehouses. So the Chinese completely banned the importation of opium and instituted blockades on the ports in order to search and destroy the uh, smuggled supplies. And let me guess where this is going. The British then uh, forcibly broke open those blockades in the name of free Free trade. trade. There we go. Yeah, in response, the British began what is euphemistically called gunboat diplomacy and basically began attacking Chinese positions in order to reopen the trade routes. Um, so if someone tells you the British Empire was basically a force for good, you can ask them what's good about collapsing the world's largest economy through forcibly making an entire nation addicted to deadly narcotics, destroying their entire social structure, shelling their cities just to ensure they're economically dependent upon you for another century. 
Um, I think Niall Ferguson would be able to find something good with that. Yeah. I don't like to put my Niall Ferguson hat on, but um, that's a not a good headspace to be in, but I think he could do it. No, there's no two ways about it. The British Empire included some of the cruelest, most inhumane, racist warmongers who've ever lived. They thrived on death, addiction, and destruction. And they left literally millions and millions of people dead and destitute just so they could build some nice country houses in the home counties. Like, these are war criminals. These are murderers. Um, <clears throat> anyway, Gordon arrived to take his enthusiastic role in this carnage. But he arrived um, almost too late. The Second Opium War was ending with Chinese humiliation. The imposition of desperately unfair treaties, which saw treaty ports open to facilitate exploitative European trade into China that further sucked more value out. Um, but he did arrive in time to take part in the looting and destruction of one of the most beautiful palaces in the world, the Imperial Summer Palace, which was uh, over 860 acres, which is eight times the size of the Vatican. It took 4,000 men three days to loot and burn the entire site. And Gordon... Oh, great... Gordon wrote, quote, We went out and after pillaging it, burned the whole place, destroying in a vandal-like manner most valuable property which could not be replaced for four million. We got upward of £48 apiece prize money. I have done well. The local people are very civil, but I think the grandees hate us, as they must, as they must after we, what we did to the palace. You can scarcely imagine the beauty and magnificence of the places we burned. It, it made one's heart sore to burn them. Oh, boo-hoo. In fact, these places were so large and were, uh, and were so pressed for time that we could not plunder them carefully. Quantities of gold ornaments were burnt, considered as brass. It was wretchedly demoralising work for an army. End quote. If you'd like to see any of this looted Chinese porcelain that was stolen from the uh, Summer Palace and you live in London, then why not pop down and see the Queen, who still has it all in her collection? Or indeed the Victorian Albert Museum. Hmm. Anyway, <clears throat> uh, at this time, China was also in the midst of uh, a huge insurrection called the Taiping Rebellion. As a result of the social and economic collapse that was caused by opium addiction, uh, the Opium Wars and then the British humiliation of the First Opium War, particularly, there was this nationalist religious movement that had sprung up in the South. Uh, as well as opium, the British had also imported Christian missionaries into China. And a young failed civil servant called Hong Shi Quan uh, produced a form of syncretic, syncretic Christianity that was derived from the Bible and his own mystical visions. And he claimed that he was the brother of Jesus Christ. His organisation, the Society of God Worshippers, began to suppress corruption and banditry in southeast China where it was located and spoke out against both the corruption of society and the moral corruption of society and also the Qing dynasty. Um, when local officials attempted to suppress the movement, it rose up in rebellion. It filled an army at first of 10,000 men and declared a heavenly kingdom of peace with Hong as the heavenly king. The rebellion quickly grew and took Nanjing as its capital. And when Gordon arrived, he was at first sympathetic to what he saw as a Christian army. But as he saw the result of the rebellion and suppression in the Chinese countryside, he quickly changed his mind and became firmly opposed to it. Britain had occupied part of northern China, but retreated to Shanghai at the end of 1862 and had cleared the area around Shanghai of rebels with the help of an American and Chinese militia in the area. Uh, Li Hongzhang, the governor of the Jiangsu province under the Xing dynasty, asked the British, to uh, the British to command this new army, and Gordon was chosen, um, which sort of pleased Lee, who described him as like this. Quote, It is a direct blessing from heaven, the coming of this British Gordon. He is superior in manner and bearing to any of the foreigners who I have come into contact with, and he does not show outwardly that, that conceit which makes most of them repugnant in my sight. What an elixir for a heavy heart to see this splendid Englishman fight, if there is anything that I admire nearly as much as the su superb scholarship of uh, Zheng Jufan, uh, it is the military qualities of this fine officer. He is a glorious fellow, with, many, with his many faults, his pride, his temper, and his never-ending demand for money. But he is a nobleman, and in spite of all I have said to him or about him, I will ever think most highly of him. He is an honest man, 
but difficult to get on with, end quote. But he did gain a reputation there for control and efficiency. Unlike previous commanders, he ensured his troops were paid in full and on time, but then banned them from looting, whereas previous commanders had just stolen their pay, but then allowed them to loot in compensation. The army was named the Ever-Victorious Army, and with Gordon in command, he forced discipline onto a force made largely up of Chinese, British and American criminals, rapists, thugs. Nevertheless, the army continued to win battles, often with Gordon leading them carrying only his rattan cane. He was actually rarely armed himself, which was part of his obsessional death wish. They took Kunshan, Suzhou, and finally the Heavenly Army's military capital in the region uh, Changzhufu. And upon victory, he wrote in his diary in capital letters, The Hourglass is Broken. Okay. Flair for the dramatic. Yeah. A British officer within the ever-victorious army described Gordon as, quote, a light-built, wiry, middle-sized man of about 32 years in age, in the undress uniform of the Royal Engineers, the countenance bore a, frank, a pleasant, frank appearance, eyes light blue with a fearless look in them, hair crisped and inclined to curl, conversation short and decided. End quote. The Taiping Rebellion was finally crushed in the sack of Nanjing by the Qing Dynasty, Estimates suggest that the war uh, that emerged out of the opium policies of the British claimed anywhere between 30 and 70 million lives and produced 30 million refugees. So at the high end of that estimate, that's looking at maybe twice the number of civilian and military casualties of the First World War. Anyway, Gordon was lauded by the Qing dynasty, and um, although he did cause great offence by refusing all their financial gifts and rewards, he disbanded the ever-victorious army in 1864 after 33 victorious battles in succession, and was returned to England as a national hero. He was a major lieutenant colonel and also a companion of honour of the a companion of the Order of Bath by Queen Victoria. The Times wrote of him, quote. The part of the soldier of fortune in the, these days is in these days very difficult to play with honour, but if ever the actions of a soldier fighting in foreign service ought to be viewed of indulgence and even of admiration, this exceptional tribute is due to Colonel Gordon. End quote. And his nickname in Britain from that point on was Chinese Gordon. He spent the next five years uh, again bored out of his mind in Kent, where he was charged with building new defensive forts, which he thought was a pointless and expensive task. However, in this time, his feelings of religious zealotry began to grow and his beliefs became more unorthodox, amongst which he believed that the Holy Communion was intended as an antidote to the eating of the apple in the Garden of Eden, um, and also that God's throne was above Temple Mount in Jerusalem, while the devil lived near the Pitcairn Islands in the Pacific. I'm not entirely sure why. You know, you have to come up with something to do if you're going to spend five years in Kent. Yeah. Um, however, while in Kent, he gave himself over to charity. And he was very generous. He gave away 90% of his income, which was around 325,000 a year today. Uh, pounds. Not bad. Yeah. And he established a school uh, for poor children. And he took in homeless boys into his house. Is this going someplace unpleasant? Well, we don't know. There is no direct evidence of any impropriety with underage boys, but then that is not the sort of thing that is recorded. Um, But that certainly became a rumour that was around him, and he was described as a quote-unquote lover of boys. And he never married. Um, The historian Mark Urban writes, quote, It is possible that he had sexual feelings for these urchins, but there is no evidence he ever acted upon them. We can only speculate that his increasing religious devotion may have been an outward manifestation of an inward, internal struggle against sexual temptation. I, from what I've read, I think that seems like a pretty valid supposition. Um, it's hard to pick apart. He wrote about his need to resist temptations of the flesh quite a lot, which might suggest homosexuality, Consider he, considering he was largely operating in a all-male environment, whether the army or at home with boys. I don't know. But he was certainly regarded relatively quickly after his death as probably homosexual. 
and he was also certainly driven by a deep physical disgust of flesh. At one point he says, quote, Yes, that is flesh, that is what I hate, and what makes me wish to die. End quote. As I said earlier, uh, British military schools produce incredibly healthy and normal psychosexual patterns. Yeah. Anyway, uh, from there, in the early 1870s, he then served in Bulgaria before being sent to Egypt in 1872 to inspect British war cemeteries. And is this where he becomes of Khartoum? This is the start of the story that becomes Gordon of Khartoum. Uh, on his way in Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul, he meets the Ottoman uh, Khedive, I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, the Khedive of Egypt, who is known as Ishmael Passa or Ishmael the Magnificent, who offered him a job under his, his administration. Um, Ishmael was a huge overspender and drove his country into massive debt. And he himself had imperialist ambitions of his own because he wished to ape the European nations that he had admired so much. Actually, one fun fact about Ishmael, um, his imperial ambitions in his time were so high that in the mid-1870s, he invited the Italian national composer Giuseppe Verdi to come to Egypt and compose an opera on ancient Egyptian themes that was supposed to be about sort of the glory of um, the Egyptian empire and this kind of in, but then very much along these kind of European lines. And so that piece, which often gets read as being a kind of Orientalist fantasy of Egypt, which it very much is, was actually commissioned by this guy because he was committed to actually creating a kind of empire along European lines and within that kind of fantasy. It's a fascinating story of cultural exchange. Um, and yeah. Thank you, Ben, our resident opera queen correspondent. Well. <laughs> um, yeah, so he, was, he wanted to form an empire, so he already pushed his empire down towards what is modern-day South Sudan with the help of his mercenary British governor and colonist Samuel Baker. And he wanted to expand that further down into Uganda. Um, so he asked Gordon to take over the role. Baker was paid uh, £10,000 pounds a year for the job which is about a million dollars in today's money um gordon actually refused the salary and said he wanted only two thousand pounds so it was a good deal he traveled down to khartoum and he was disgusted to find one of his officers had attempted to sleep with a belly dancer who was laid on for their entertainment he um he clashed really strongly with the egyptian ottomans uh, system because he was attempting to prevent slave trading happening in his territory, and that was a trade that really enriched his superiors. Um, I think this is a good time also to look back on the episode we did on Lawrence of Arabia, because there starts to be so many comparisons with, with Lawrence of Arabia in terms of somebody who starts to uh, identify with an Orientalist vision of the people that he's sent to rule, and mm -hmm. that becomes <clears throat> um, Gordon of Khartoum's story. Um, he claimed later that he, quote, taught the natives that they had a right to exist, end quote. Oh, yeah, I'm sure that they had never... Yeah, they never thought that before. Thought that before, yeah. Um, and he worked uh, to suppress the sort of uh, animist religious beliefs of the New Era and the Dinka peoples. A great way to teach people that they have a right to exist yeah. is to suppress their religious practices. Yeah. Um, he encouraged missionary work in the territory and actually worked in close liaison with this British evangelical organisation called the Anti-Slavery Society, which was a sort of successor organisation to the original Anti-Slavery Society that was established to abolish slavery throughout the world, not just in the British Empire. Anyway, as a result, the perception of Gordon back in England became really tied in with this sort of self-image of the colonialist project. By colonising the world, they were saving, quote-unquote, natives from the cruel practices of their own barbaric cultures and saving souls for Christ at the same time. However, his anti-slavery position eventually made his role in the Sudan uh, untenable, and when Leopold of Belgium, of all people, uh, offered him a job to colonise Central Africa, he took it. Um, so wait a minute, he goes from um, the Anti-Slavery Society to King Leopold of Belgium? Yeah. Oh boy. Um, 
But uh, Ishmael Pasha reminded him that he'd given his word uh, to serve him for a period, and so unable to break it, he returned to Cairo, where the Pasha made him the governor general of Sudan and gave him the title of Pasha himself. So from this point, he was known within Egypt and Sudan as Pasha Gordon. Um, he attempted to reform the administrative and bureaucratic life of Sudan, but he failed, partly due to an economic crisis that was caused by um, those very same European attempts to suppress the slave trade, which caused huge unrest. Um, Egypt under uh, Ishmael Pasha had gone completely bankrupt. European banks effectively took control of the country and 50% of its income alone went simply on servicing the 7% debt. And that was the last time that European banks would ever do anything like that. <clears throat> yeah. So Gordon now had no money to reform the systems. So he attempted to negotiate with the main banker, Evelyn Baring of Baring's Bank, um, asking to, to pause the repayments on the debt so that Egypt could pay its arrears to its soldiers and civil servants, thus seeing off revolution, which is a very smart economic political policy, but Bering refused. European banks making short-sighted decisions yeah. about debt repayment? That has never happened again. So back in Sudan, he faced uh, an insurrection from powerful interests that were linked to slave trade. He met with the rebels face-to-face, -face, which was a pretty bold move, and he won back their support for the Pasha, but meanwhile Bering had essentially forced the Pasha's abdication in favour of his son, by pressuring the Ottoman Sultan. So he then returned to put down more insurrections in Sudan, but ultimately he failed. His attempts to Christianize the region and to force out the Ottoman Egyptian system collapsed. And the failure was something he was totally unused to. He'd never been unable to do anything in his life. Oh. So he left Poor his buddy. Yeah. He left his position. He stayed in Cairo waiting for a steamer back to England. And he filled his time then by sending these bizarre telegrams to um, religious ministers in England claiming that he'd found a solution to life's problems and they were full of this religious imagery. He was in the midst of a nervous breakdown. Um, he was sent to recover in Geneva, but his religious positions just grew increasingly unorthodox. He believed in reincarnation, writing, quote, this life is one is only one of a series of lives which our incarnated part has lived. I have little doubt of our having pre-existed, and that also in the time of our pre-existence we were also we were actively employed. So therefore, I believe in our active employment in a future life, and I like the thought. End quote. Hmm. Uh, he also believed in predestination. Unsurprising. Mm -hmm. In 1880, he was offered a number of jobs, including leader of the Congo Free State a personal commercial colony of King Leopold II of Belgium. Again uh, with the King Leopold II <clears throat> of Belgium. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the crimes of colonialism, the management of the Congo Free State is uh, a perfect example of the sort of racist brutality that underpins colonialism. Baskets of hands, yes? Uh, yeah. It's, yeah, it was a truly evil regime of commercial slaughter by, by Europeans, which... I think actually we might discuss in a future series because there are bad gays involved. He was also offered a position of military commander of the Cape Colony in South Africa. Um, but at the time he was deeply, deeply depressed and he turned it down saying that he knew that he only had 10 years to live and he wanted to do something with his life. Um, so then there was this period where he travelled quite a lot more. He spent time again in China. Then in Ireland, where actually pretty honourably he, he advocated for political and land reform. And then in Mauritius, where he was again very bored, except for a time when he claimed to have found the tree of knowledge of good and evil from Genesis in the Bible, the one that they eat the apple from. In Mauritius? In Mauritius. It Wait, was actually... So if God lives in Jerusalem and heaven's in sort of Israel's neighbourhood, then how is the... the Garden of Eden is in the Seychelles. Garden of Eden in the Seychelles. Yeah. Aren't they in the same? What was that? Not in Where is that? Somewhere else? Or is my... No, no. The, the Garden of Eden is a place on Earth, right? Yeah. Oh, help us listeners who, no, know, he, their no, he, Christian, no. who know their Christian 
Is God God created it and he went by Adam and Eve there? Right, but I thought it was... Oh, never mind. It was in the Seychelles, all right? Okay, fine. But yeah, he found this tree that he thought was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is a cocoa de mer tree, which I thoroughly encourage our listeners to look up because it clearly is a tree made of cocks and asses. How do you spell it? Coco de mer. I guess coconut of the sea or something. I don't know. Um, anyway, he spent some time in South Africa and uh, then some more time indulging his religious mysteries in Palestine before he eventually accepted King Leopold's offer. However, while back in London preparing for this next episode of colonialism, he heard about a new uprising in Sudan, which obviously he was still attached to. Crushed under European debt, brutalised by Egyptian colonisation, both of which that Gordon himself had had a hand in, either directly or inadvertently, um, an insurrection had begun under the command of Mohammed Ahmed. Ahmed declared himself a Mahdi, uh, which is a, messi- a messianic figure prophesied to introduce a new era of uh, a purer form of Islamic rule and um, spiritual cleansing. And he declared jihad against the Egyptian, uh, what he said about the Egyptian apostates. Um, by this time, Britain, having put down an earlier uprising, had turned Egypt into basically a de facto protectorate, of which, of which Evelyn Banking, Evelyn Banking, Evelyn Baring was the supreme leader. Mm-hmm. Um, by the end of 1883, the Mahdi had control of most of Sudan. Egypt held pretty much only its ports and a small slither in the north. And in an interview with um, William Thomas Stead, who was a very, very famous Victorian newspaper man, Gordon sort of slapped after being pushed on his position, saying that he really disapproved of the government's policy in Sudan. And then he claimed that if Sudan fell, the Islamic rebels would start to take country after country. Very much a sort of Victorian analogy to um, Kissinger's domino effect in Southeast Asia with communism. Absolutely, yeah. And as a result, this public outcry in support of Gordon was absolutely huge. And so they, the British government sent him to Egypt with the order to establish command in Khartoum and re-establish uh, British control over Sudan. He sent a telegram to, to troops that were already in the city stating, quote, don't be panic-stricken, stop. Ye are men, not women, stop. I am coming, stop. Gordon. Hmm. He then made a fatal error, meeting uh, Berber tribal leaders who were in support of the Pasha, mm-hmm. telling him that the secret orders that he'd been given stated that Egypt was actually planning to exit Sudan. And as a result, almost all the Berber tribal leaders switched allegiance to the Mahdi thinking, knowing which side their bread was buttered on, essentially. Um, which was a terrible mistake, <clears throat> which meant that they, they basically had no chance of capturing uh, most of Sudan. Uh, the Mahdi and uh, Gordon exchanged letters. Um, Gordon demanding he put down his arms, and the Mahdi demanding that Gordon convert to Islam. Churchill once wrote about Gordon, quote, Mercury uncontrolled by the force of gravity was not on several occasions more unstable than Charles Gordon. His, his moods were capricious and uncertain, his passions violent, his impulses sudden and inconsistent. The mortal enemy of the morning had become a trusted ally by night, end quote. And that's quite a judgment from Churchill, who, you know, would probably be described in the same terms by his opponents. I think it's a pretty accurate description, actually. Mm-hmm. Takes one to know one, perhaps. Anyway, tasked with evacuating Khartoum, he instead arrived and declared that he would hold the city, saving it from the Mahdi's armies who flew the Black Banner of Islam. He had 8,000 men, arms, and a huge amount of ammunition. And he was greeted on his arrival by, um, by, by the people of Khartoum as a, a new sultan. He evacuated the women, the women, the children and the wounded, and he prepared the city for a state of siege. He actually had a Times reporter on hand whose breathless reports turned the siege into something of a national soap opera for the British public, with Gordon as the last defender of Christian virtue heading down, quote, Islamic dervishes. 
the rebellion was growing and an attack by the Haddon Dower of on General Gordon, sorry, General Graham, who was uh, another British commander in Sudan, shocked the British. Um, Graham withdrew his forces, leaving Gordon, who, true to form, disobeyed orders and stayed. The government was completely furious, but his public support left them comp- um, totally impotent to act. He wrote in his own diary, quote, uh, I own to having been very insubordinate to Her Majesty's government and its officials, but it is my nature, and I cannot help it. I fear I have, even, I have not even tried to play battledore and shuttlecock with them. I know if I was a chief, I would never employ myself, for I am incorrigible. End quote. <laughs> the cabinet decided they would just leave him to, the consequen- to face the consequences of his own actions. His death wish was stronger than ever. He wrote to his sister saying, quote, I feel so very much inclined to wish it his will might be my release. Earth's joys grow very dim, its glories have faded. End quote. He explicitly thought of the oncoming battle in religious terms, as did his enemy, who knew that they would gain a very impressive scalp with his inevitable defeat. The siege of the newly fortified city began on the 18th of March, 1884, and Gordon played the entire thing to the gallery. His telegrams home were clearly designed not for the army, but for public consumption, stating, quote, You state your intention of not sending any relief force up here to Berber. I shall hold on here as long as I can, and, I, and if I can suppress the rebellion, I shall do so. If I cannot, I shall retire to the equator and leave you the indelible disgrace of abandoning the garrisons, mm-hmm. end quote. The cabinet terrified about a public backlash, uh, went on to overrule the Prime Minister and voted to send a relief expedition to Khartoum of a budget of £300,000. Gordon had had a military band play in a central square twice a week, and he'd actually begun casting his own honours and decorations for his soldiers. Mm-hmm. There's very much something of the Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now about this situation, I think. Absolutely, you can really hear it. He even used the um, destroyed telegraph lines that the Mahdi had cut down to build his own telegraph network within the city for ease of military communication. And the city was completely fortified under his control. By the autumn of 1884, things had taken uh, a turn very much for the worst. The city was being pounded by Mahdi artillery and Gordon was losing men. And by the end of the year, the city was starving. Gordon decided to let any civilians who wished to leave leave, even if they joined his enemies. Still, the British press lionised him with the Palmal Gazette writing, quote, Out in clear relief against the eastern sky, alone in a black continent, dauntless and unfaltering, he discharges his great trust, holding the capital of the Sudan against the beleaguering hordes, end quote. This is standard orientalising racist uh, yes. bullshit. The beleaguering hordes. Yeah. Um, the uh, so yeah he um, yeah he was taking this sort of um, increasingly out of touch megalomaniacal approach. He was seen every day palacing the palace roof, clear line of sight of enemy snipers, looking in vain for the smoke from steamers that were being sent. He believed to relieve the city. He wrote in his diary, quote, "Better a bullet to the brain than to flicker out unheeded." End quote. He told a merchant in the town who asked him to dim the light during a nightly artillery bombardment that he wasn't afraid and actually he ordered the lamps to be turned up, saying, quote, Go tell all the people of Khartoum that Gordon fears nothing, for God has created him without fear, end quote. With the British relief force advancing, um, the Mahdi and his Ansar troops had his hand forced, and on the 26th of January 1885, the Mahdi ordered the Ansar troops to gather their banners and to attack the city. Hmm. Two days before the first British relief ships arrived, the Mahdi captured the city and killed all 7,000 defenders. Gordon was killed in his palace and beheaded, his head being returned to the Mahdi as a trophy. The Times called him, quote, that solitary figure holding aloft the flag of England in the face of the dark hordes of Islam, end quote. Oh, the dark hordes of Islam. They make their appearance. And Shades of Pimfortown, right? Yeah. That is the life of Gordon of Khartoum. So we've been totally overwhelmed by the success of the show so far. 
Thank you so much to all of you for listening, but a big special thank you goes out to all of our Patreon donors. Yeah, so far you've funded a second season and an ongoing series of special episodes, and you've really helped us to improve our audio quality. But there is a lot more that we'd like to do, uh, and we're not sponsored by anyone. We're not backed by any media company. We make the show for you, hopefully soon with more episodes, more interviews, and you let us know that you appreciate the show by giving what you can. So now's the time we awkwardly ask for money. So, to support the show, visit patreon.com slash badgazepod to sign up. We send you newsletters, zines, novels, and more, depending on your level of support. Anything you can give is really appreciated, and if money's tight, a good review on iTunes or on your podcast app really, really helps us find new audiences. Thanks. That's patreon.com slash badgazepod. Thanks. Wow. Well, that's a lot to absorb. Um... I think maybe one interesting place to start would be this question of his sexuality, because this is, after all, a podcast called Bad Gays, and bad I'm willing to buy at this point uh, fully, but let's talk a little bit more about the evidence for his uh, homosexuality or his kind of same-sex inclinations. You mentioned that uh, relatively soon after his death, he was uh, sort of publicly considered to be homosexual. Uh, what were some of the reasons uh, for that? I think given the way he um, conformed to British cultural and social norms at the time, the fact that he didn't have a wife or any female love interest at all uh, for somebody who seemed otherwise the epitome of a manly man, was very suspicious for people. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to make a call either way whether he was gay or not. There does seem to be little evidence for it. Do you think it's important that he was regarded that way? So whether he, you know, like there's been a lot of people we've featured where we can't, you know, we can't tell one way or another whether they ever actually engaged in male-male sex. Um, mm-hmm. that that he was read as as gay for his complete disinterest in women. I think it's made doubly complicated by the fact that he had a very fucked up relationship with his own body, with bodies in general. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I do think it's hard to say that whether Gordon of Cartoon was homosexual or not. Um, I also don't think we can say he was heterosexual. Oh, certainly not. Um, Can you speak a little bit more about his relationship with his body? I mean, you talked a little bit about this kind of disgust at his body or or, um, disgust at the flesh, but um, are there other examples that you found in your research of people who are this kind of disgusted by themselves and by flesh in general? And um, do you think this is something that led to the kind of fervent religious belief or something that maybe arose from it? Uh, I think it arose probably from the fervent religious belief. Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably wasn't helped by being brought up in brought up in an English public school, being raised yep. in the British Army. Um, I think it's a whole series of things, and I actually think that far from him being aberrant uh, within British culture, I actually think he's aberrant only to deg- the degree that he continues it to its logical conclusion. I think that sort of discourse around hatred of his body, around um, disgust around the idea of sexual acts, and this need for a sort of... Um, uh, what's the word? Like a... Not a sovereignty, but like a... Uh, like a control over his physical self mm-hmm. is very deep within... Victorian English culture and persists to this day. Absolutely. Speaking about the kind of similarities and differences between Gordon and Lawrence, I think is interesting um, here. So folks who listened to the Lawrence episode in our first season will remember that Lawrence, while also a kind of um, spectacularly daring military commander was also kind of a profoundly sexual person in a lot of ways. I mean, there are those um, kind of kinky S&M scenarios he was setting up by letter for himself where he was 
pretending to be his own uncle and having himself beaten by various kind of stocky drivers, and he had this kind of lust for life, and Gordon has this dourness about him. He's this, like, dour Calvinist... But then it somehow just all gets kind of squared in on itself on this, like, acid trip of death wish um, to really abuse about ten metaphors all at once there. Well, the death wish is a very peculiar aspect of his personality. Um, that I think maybe is the aberrant part. Also, though, within that context, I do find the sort of looking after um, runaway boys in his house doesn't fit the rest of his public persona, and yet was clearly something that he cared about deeply. I wonder. I wonder. I wonder to the extent that you could write that as down as an act of Christian charity. Um, I mean, he clearly. He clearly did feel that he was moved by ethical and moral patrician values. Um, it does still strike me as slightly strange that, compared, yeah, compared to the rest of his identity, which was, for the Victorian public especially, one of uh, imperial masculinity, like a model of imperial masculinity. And the very model was, of a modern major general. He was famed for... Um, Having a very small group of friends, he didn't like celebrations in his honour, he didn't like large gatherings, he didn't like public dinners. He would said to have walked miles to avoid anything, any celebrations in his honour. And yet he clearly had an eye on the myth of himself, um, especially towards the end. I do wonder whether the difference between Lawrence and Gordon of Khartoum is the First World War. I wonder if in a different situation with... Lawrence being around sort of while the empire was um, beginning to collapse, at least in, well, beginning to no longer expand and then to collapse in its sort of moral grounding and then following the slaughter of the First World War and the sort of um, tendencies, the cultural tendencies that that freed, whether that would have had an effect. Hmm. If, uh, if people haven't listened to it, I really would recommend going back and listening to that Lawrence for Arabia episode because it really ties in the links between homosexuality, colonialism and anthropology that that we were talking about. Um, I remember a really interesting fact that you mentioned, which was that the first German anthropological institutions opened in 1869, which was the very same year that Karl Maria Kerbeni coined the term homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, he claimed that he had an anthropological interest in homosexuality, which is a good excuse. It's a very good excuse. Don't come in, Mom. I'm I'm doing some anthropological research. Oh boy. Um, well, Hugh, um, it's come to the time of the show where we have to decide: Gordon of Khartoum, bad gay or not bad gay? Bloody awful. Um, a bloody awful man, as far as I can read. Um, trapped in a bloody awful society doing bloody awful things um, but the gay bit remains a, a question that will never be answered it does so if people want to learn more about Gordon of Khartoum uh, where can they go and what are some of the sources that you use to research this episode um, there's there's plenty there's a terrible film with Charlton Heston and oh god Laurence Olivier in blackface. Oh, no. I, I do not recommend that, although... Oh, no, 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 no. Although the historian uh, Alex von Tunzelman has written a good takedown of that piece in The Guardian that I did read. Um, the, most of the stuff I got was from a book called uh, Gordon, Victorian Hero by a historian called C. Brad Fort, F-A-U-G-H-T. Um, there was also a very popular biography that was quite good called Gordon, the Man Behind the Legend by John Pollock. And then I also read a very interesting article about him, uh, an academic article about him in a book called Masculinity and the Other Historical Perspectives, edited by Heather Ellis and Jessica Meyer. Nice. Thanks so much for listening to the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy, or you can subscribe to my newsletter, which is at hugh.substack.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. And you can follow the show at Bad Gaze Pod. If you liked what you heard, please visit patreon.com slash badgazepod to donate, and or you can leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast provider to help us grow our audience. Thanks so much. See you next week. 
Bad, 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 bad,